You're listening to Tov, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hey, it's John Spira-Savet, and I'm co-hosting today with David Shiavitz. Hey, David. Hello, John. It's great to have, meet you and, and be on the show with you. Yeah, once again, The Good Place brings people together. We've networked, but we haven't seen each other or met before. It's just great. Tell us in a couple sentences where you do your Jewish teaching thing. So, yeah, I, I can't join the Club of Rabbis, so I don't rabbi anywhere. But I do Jewishly teach. Uh, I'm a professor of Jewish history at Northwestern University in, in Evanston, just outside of Chicago. And uh, so, you know, more importantly, in terms of getting to know you, would be your your character. So who on the good place of the main bunch is are you today feeling like you're the most like? Yeah, no, this this unfortunately was an easy one for me. I, you know, uh, college professor, um, interested in philosophy, I'm an intellectual historian uh, by training, somewhat neurotic probably also. <laughs> so I'm, I'm an easy cheaty. It wasn't even a, wasn't even a near thing. Any of them you wish you were a bit more like? Yeah, it, uh, different characters in, on different days, but I think I, I you know, gave this some thought in advance, and I think there's there's a part of me that would love to have some more Jason in my life, just sort of the, you know, simplicity, sort of serenity, and like sort of total, you know, self-comfort um, or comfort with himself that he seems to have. I, I guess, you know, he's sort of the opposite of Chidi in that way, <laughs> and there's something very appealing about, I think, you know, in Hebrew... I would say maybe his tmimut, like his sort of, you know, simplicity and like purity almost. And I, I find that really appealing. Uh, so how about your your Good Place origin story? How did you discover the show or get into it? I knew of the show, I think from the time that it first came out on network TV, on, on NBC, I guess, right? Yeah. And that's because my family has some huge Kristen Bell fans. You know, my kids are obsessed with Frozen. I don't remember the timeline, actually, of whether Frozen came out first or whether the good place came out first but in any case like she's been on our radar my wife grew up watching veronica mars which was uh, i think an early Kristen bell uh, starring vehicle so i sort of you know was vaguely aware that the show existed and i'm really interested you know maybe as we'll talk about in like jewish ideas about heaven and the afterlife and death and so the idea about a show that you know treated those topics i sort of you know was was curious about it but we didn't have network tv we don't have cable uh -huh. all of our all of our TV consumption is, is through streaming services. And so until the show came to Netflix, I don't think I ever watched a single episode. And then in the last couple of years, I started teaching a course at Northwest called The History of Heaven, which is about, you know, from antiquity until the present, different ideas about, you know, death and the afterlife and what it says about, you know, us as human beings, the way that we envision what happens at the end of, of, of days. And so once I started teaching that course, I thought, okay, I have to really get up to speed on The Good Place. <laughs> and I binge watched it, I think, probably in a week or two, all 40-something episodes. Oh, along my goodness. With a bunch, <laughs> yeah, along with a bunch of other TV series on similar <laughs> topics. There was like really a couple of weeks where every time in the middle of the day, you know, this was, we were, we were quarantined at home. Every time that my wife would, would, you know, get off of her calls and just pass by, she'd see me watching Netflix and be like, what are you, why are you watching TV all day? And I have to say, no, this is for research. It's work. Um, very important scholarship going on right now. But uh, anyway, so that's how I came to watch the show. And I just sort of fell in love with it. That's great. And to the first part, I will notice that there were two Frozen callbacks in this episode. I don't know. Did you catch them? No, I did so, not. Oh, well, okay. So one is, the first one I noticed my first prep through was when, I think, when Eleanor is discussing about things that maybe she 
might have to t- might not have to tell somebody about she says something about a, a time when one was particularly gassy and so that's you know don't know oh, if I'm related or gassy nicely done and, okay uh, and right. the other is in the in the uh, first scene with Janet and Derek I think when when Janet is trying to explain to Michael how Derek is really her her guy, she says we're even completing each other's. Oh, right, completing uh, each other's Derek. Yeah. <laughs> so I thought that was that was great fun. <laughs> so uh, we are talking about chapter twenty one here, Derek. So David, give us a summary of this episode. All right. So Janet creates a rebound guy named Derek to help her stop glitching in response to Jason's relationship with Tahani. But quickly, Janet and Derek take to bickering over everything. Michael worries that Vicky and the other demons will learn about Derek and figure out that something is up, so he explores various options for murder and lying that Chidi shoots down as unethical. Jason and Tahani develop their own unlikely relationship over croquet, and Jason proposes and they make plans to be married on the beach. At the last minute, the others arrive, and Eleanor explains to them about Janet's previous marriage to Jason. Eleanor explains that you have to talk about feelings, even when it's hard, and then herself discloses to Chidi about their own relationship in a previous reboot. Michael reflects with Eleanor about how hard it is to be ethical, and Eleanor tells him about the little inner voice that she used to hear during her life when she would do something wrong. Janet reabsorbs Derek, and all order seems restored for the time being, until Sean arrives. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> Good. So this was a fun episode. <laughs> was... This was a great one. I love I love Derek. I love the, the conceit. And I just love some of the individual jokes also. I, thought, I found myself laughing out loud a lot. <laughs> I thought when Jason is explaining why the beach would be a cool place to be married and says that it's so many things happen that are cool at the beach, like swimsuit issue, issues and saving Private Ryan. Yeah, yeah. He had some great lines also. The ones that get my attention, for better or worse, it probably says something about me, but just are the most silly ones. So when they're reading their own vows and Tahani says, you know, I never would have thought that I, a world famous, I forget how she describes herself now, in some humorous way. And you, Jason, a man who once asked me if the statues on Mount Rushmore have have butts on the other side. Uh, it's just like the level of absurdity uh, was just was amazing. Yeah, there was nice. I like the thing where when Eleanor tells Chidi or shows him the video, I guess that she's been calling Cannonball Run too, and and he and he the way he describes how his his inability to commit is that he once contemplated renting socks. Right. <laughs> yeah, that was great. That was great. And I, love, I think, oh, what was the context? I love this whole thing that it was a good writer's episode where they were playing out about the the olives. I think stumping uh, the little voice in her head said about you know don't stick your fingers in the the whole thing about the olive right. thing and don't use don't the leave fact those pits on the floor <laughs> and don't use the fact that the old man fell in the, on the <laughs> olive pits as a distraction to steal steal <laughs> Uh, and of course, the amazing Darcy Carden with just the amount of both physical, sort of different voice. Like I think she's really in this track in the uh, in this part of the season where Janet is emerging as a person who doesn't just do hi, you know, fun fact or right. let me help you. Right. Great, uh, great. So I, I listened to just you know in preparation as part of my cheatiness and my need to uh, you know to be prepared and do all my research. So I listened to the official Good Place podcast for this episode and learned that she. And, and the actor, Jason Mansukas, who plays Derek, actually go way back and have a whole career together in the Upright Citizens Brigade. Um, 
And so like the chemistry even between the two of them, apparently, you know, is they, they worked hard for it over, over a lot of time. And he, I just think is, is amazing in this role. I think he's amazing in general, but he's hysterical. I mean, Have you seen him in anything else? Yeah, I mean, I saw him in, I think, in The League, which I watched ages ago, or I think I watched parts of ages ago, which I'm not sure that I recommend. It's, you know, not a very appropriate show, but he's, he's very, very funny in it. And I can't remember offhand now what else, but I feel like he's one of these faces and his demeanor is so unique that, you know, you recognize him when you see him. And I love what he brings to this, you know, to this part. I just like the, the, the humor and the absurdity and the physical comedy. He's really great. So this is an episode that I think was was high on fun, and there was a lot of parallels in terms of these relationships. And I think you and I had been in touch for a long time about talking about the idea of soulmates. And obviously the episode is not, you know, the deepest possible in 22 minutes exploration of, of all the different aspects of that idea. But what have you got to, to sort of start to guide us through that theme? Yeah, so I mean, so this is a topic I'm really interested in, in general, like I said before, Jewish ideas about heaven and the afterlife, and then they intersect in a lot of, I think, really interesting ways with these questions about soulmates or family relationships or intimate relationships and like the theological value that those things have in the Jewish tradition. So, uh, you know, so I, I always thought it was a really interesting choice in the show, you know, to sort of, I, I understand why they do it for narrative purposes, but even conceptually to, to have one of the components of the afterlife be that you get matched up with somebody and that it's a soulmate and, and you know, it's used to torture these characters in the, in the plot of the show, but that the assumption is that this is something that will resonate for everybody is that, yeah, well, of course, when you get to heaven, you know, you meet your soulmate or you reunite with your soulmate. Maybe we can get back later, but, you know, it's interesting also that the show chooses to do that on the level of romantic relationships, but none of the characters ask really about like seeing their great grandparents in heaven, right? Or like, mm. where's my my, you know, dear departed dog or, or whatever it might be. So like there's some kinds of relationships that don't make it into the show and that's interesting. But the emphasis on soulmates, I think intersects with a lot of really interesting Jewish ideas. So, you know, because of my, again, cheatiness, I had a really hard time deciding on one text to bring in. So I've got- We can range about too, yeah. Yeah, I have, <laughs> I have a few in the queue, but I think the most famous one or maybe one of the best known sources in, in the Jewish tradition about this idea comes from uh, the very beginning of Tractate Sota in, uh, in the Babylonian Talmud. Sota is this really sort of upsetting and, and fascinating topic in the Torah and in rabbinic tradition about what happens when there is adultery or, you know, when somebody is unfaithful within, within a marriage. And there's a whole kind of ritual and process, you know, that's described and that's meant to clarify basically whether, you know, the, the relationship, I guess, is on sound footing or not. And in the beginning of the Talmudic discussion of that topic, there's this really fascinating teaching where one rabbi used to say people only get married to one another based on the quality of their deeds. In other words, you know, a man will only marry a woman and a woman will only marry a man. And, and the assumption in, you know, in, in the Talmud is this sort of you know, heteronormative assumption about, about marriage. That's why I'm using that, that pairing. And the assumption is if you marry you know, a woman who will eventually be unfaithful or, you know, or vice versa, it says something about you because everybody gets the partner that they deserve. And the Talmud then immediately asks, well, how does that fit with another idea that we have and this other teaching that the rabbis seem to be familiar with, which is that actually all partnerships, all romantic relationships are decreed by God long before you're born. There's this idea that 40 days before anybody is even conceived, God has already determined, you know, so-and-so is going to marry so-and-so, which is much more 
you know, seems much more in line with this idea about, about soulmates, right? That God has literally decreed, even before you're a body, when you're nothing but a disembodied soul, that these two souls are going to are gonna get together. So, so the Talmud asks, how does that fit with the idea that, you know, it's all based on, on your own deeds, whether you end up with a good relationship or not? And the answer that they give uh, to smooth out the inconsistency is, well, one of these teachings refers to a first marriage, and one of these teachings refers to a second marriage. So the hmm. first marriage that anybody's going to have is decreed by God. And the second marriage that somebody might have is a sort of, you know, made or the match is made in accordance with somebody's deeds. And that's the way that they leave things in the Talmud. And for me, that always was such a bad answer or it's such a confusing answer, because if God makes the decree of who's going to marry who, why would there ever be a second marriage, right? Who's going to get divorced or, I mean, conceivably you could have somebody, you know, die within the relationship, but but let's assume that, you know, divorce is, is, is in the picture. Um, can you imagine getting divorced from the soulmate that God decreed you're supposed to be married to 40 days before you're even in existence? So anyway, the sort of tensions built into that passage seem to me very thought-provoking about, you know, what does a relationship look like on its theological level in terms of how it either you know, mirrors or doesn't mirror whatever plan God might have had in mind. So that's the source that I thought, you know, is is an interesting jumping off point, maybe. And I've got some others in, you know, in reserve. Yeah, but as we I, think about this idea about soulmates from a Jewish vantage point. Yeah, it is interesting. We've had the the iterations where people seem to gravitate or they're exploring the soulmates that they were originally assigned as part of the season one torture. So now Eleanor and Chidi, who were originally, really, that was Michael's plan to to have them just go go crazy being attached to each other. They are now discovering that they had discovered each other in some yeah. way. And and then Jason and Tahani, although I guess it was Jian Yu and not Jason who Tahani originally was. Uh, right. And then we have this complex thing where Janet has in this triangle, I guess, with the... Uh, <laughs> With Derek and uh, and and Jason, which is crazy, and so I'm trying to figure out, and, and obviously I think you know, just uh, you said this, but to make this clear to our listeners that this is a, you know, crazy, like on a mechanical level, this this Talmudic teaching doesn't make any sense. It's got to be pointing us in some other direction. But it is, it is, it's interesting that we had also the interlude of the soulmates who were well, there was Chidi who had to pick between at the beginning of season two between different soulmates and was given right. this. He had right. to make the choice. As as like you know who was a suitable soulmate and then Eleanor got the the ripped mailman who supposedly was the man of her, <laughs> her dreams and that which sort of and so I'm trying to think like does that sound like more like the actions but in a way what happens now is it seems like the actions that they that the group has together seems to draw people together but they don't feel in this episode like anybody's like well you're obviously my soulmate like like do, do you get the sense from the talmud that people are supposed to actually know that they're with their soulmate or just sort of look around and say oh this person is either the the a option or the b option right right no it's a great question cuz cuz i feel like in the show at least at this juncture in the show the idea that seems to be driving at is that you can really grow into a relationship and people who who maybe may have initially been juxtaposed with each other precisely to torture them, right? Because like, you know, Eleanor and, and Chidi are put together precisely because they couldn't possibly be soulmates in any real way, but then they develop into, so that seems more in keeping with this idea about, you know, your deeds or maybe the ability to evolve and to progress and and not only to sort of live out the one path that God de decreed for you on the surface before you came into existence. Because there's, I don't know, there's something very restrictive about that notion that like, 
everything you're going to do, every relationship you're going to have, you know, is sort of superimposed on you from without and you are living out the, the destiny that has been set for you. Ironically, I feel like the pairing of the ones that you mentioned in this, in this episode that is most like a soulmate in some way is actually the one between Janet and Derek <laughs> because they literally share a soul, right? I mean, if there is a soul, like she made him out of her and he's part of her. And that doesn't seem like a very healthy relationship. So I don't know. I'm not sure what to do with that either. No. Yeah. I don't know. I really don't know. So again, do you, like stepping back in the Talmudic terms, do you think they, were they taking this seriously when they threw these out there? Were they... Or were these just kind of, did they seem like musings? It's a good question. So there's one other rabbinic passage that comes to mind from, uh, it's from, from Genesis Rabbah, one of the, you know, classic Gashim on, on the first book of the Bible, where they, there's a different setup there, but I think the theme is the same. And the setup is basically, once upon a time, one rabbi, I think it's Rabbi Yossi Bar Chalafta, is talking to this Roman person, and the Roman person is sort of trying to trip up uh, this rabbi and asks him, okay, so you guys believe that God created the world in six days, right? And he says, yeah, that's what we believe. And so the person says back to him, okay, well, then what's God been doing ever since? Like, after day six, day seven and onward, what's God spending his time on? And the answer that he gives, Rabbi Yosef HaChalafta gives, is he spends all of his time matchmaking, setting up, you know, marriages, basically. And the Roman interlocutor says, oh, well, you know, why is God wasting his time on that? You know, anybody can do that. That's easy. The Roman person has, you know, has a bunch of slaves or enslaved people. And and he takes, uh, you know, all the men and matches them up with all the women and basically sends them off and says, okay, you guys are married. And says, see, what, like, why does God need to do this? This is easy. Anybody can do this. And the payoff of the story is that the next day, everybody's miserable. The matchmaking was done sort of, you know, uh, ad hoc and without any kind of, you know, careful forethought. And so those relationships all, you know, disintegrate immediately, which I think points in the direction of, again, saying that if God made the decrees, if God sets you up with your soulmate, then that's the only way you're going to have a lasting, fulfilling relationship. So again, sort of maybe indicating that for the rabbis, if there's a good marriage, if there's a good relationship between partners, you want to give the credit to God for it, that there, you know, almost is a necessity for this like divine intervention in order to make these relationships, which can be so challenging, you know, ultimately. So maybe that's one of the pieces that's driving them. But again, you know, it's, I'm not sure how satisfying it is. I mean, you know, speaking personally, like as somebody, a, a child of divorced parents, and we can all think of lots of examples where families do not seem terribly healthy, like there was a divine plan that went into it. So it's a kind of a theological challenge or a, almost a moral question, like how to think about those teachings in a world where we see that these relationships are not always working out in a way that seems inconsonant with some divine plan. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought that last story back in the mix, which Dan Ross and I talked about once in season one. It'll be interesting to see what, what else we, we make from that. Uh, you know, you started off with also saying that the Torah, and you know, here we are, right in the Ten Commandments, acknowledges the, the reality of adultery, of failures, of relationships, and and this rather gruesome. I guess we'll have to put the link in the show notes. The description of this test and that this ordeal that a, that a woman again. These texts are very, you know, as you say, both heteronormative and I think fundamentally misogynistic when they're when they're dealing with these kinds of things. But yeah. but what can we, you know, if we if there's something that we could possibly extract out of that. Well, I like what you said that there is this, you know, when we, we could shake out and look at relationships and say, well, these, some of these look like soulmates and those you say we kind of attribute to, to divine matchmaking. There are plenty of relationships that, that aren't. And I like that, that a whole lot of what gets sort of 
started but also interrupted in this episode is the exploration of that. I really I really love how Eleanor feels really both compelled to show Chidi like there was some place where we had arrived at something and I don't want to talk about it. Right. And and I love how that's sort of juxtaposed against Tahani saying, maybe this is the relationship I need. Like when Jason says basically, I will always be nice to you. And this seems to be one of his repeated themes, especially in this season, is that you know, that's at the basic level, like forget that I don't know how to play croquet except by smashing a bunch of a tower of wine glasses, <laughs> champagne. <laughs> and 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 Tahani, you know, first thinks, well maybe this is what I need and let my hair down. Right. Not that I would ever wear my hair up. <laughs> and so you know, one thing I would ask you is like how central in, in some of this Jewish thought is the soulmate construct? Does it seem to be a, a, a core thought? And especially and I and I want to hear what you have to say about how it links to Jewish ideas of of afterlife or is it just something that's kind of hanging around there as a you know and i and i say this part I, well i don't know i should stop i'd ask is how much do you think that that soulmate idea is is really integrated in some core jewish ideas even about relationships or about ethical gender? yeah yeah i think you can at least i i've found it in a lot of places and i think even just sociologically you know i can i'll, I'll speak only for the circles that i run in but you know I can remember being, you know, younger than I am now when a lot of friends, you know, were getting married, when I was getting married and hearing a lot of talk about finding, you know, people finding their bashertz, which is this, you know, sort of Yiddish term for, for soulmate, essentially. And so even, I guess, you know, I'd say even beyond like classical Jewish sources, you know, this is an idea that gets tossed around a lot, even today. And people are wondering whether the person they're dating or considering marrying, do they pass that that threshold of being of being their soulmate, uh, which again, can maybe be a, a kind of a restrictive frame to put on things. But yeah, I think that you do see other kinds of rabbinic sources assuming this kind of predestination that God sets people up with each other. At the same time, though, you know, in some other kinds of texts and other periods of Jewish history, I think some of the questions or like the tensions around soulmates change based on the historical circumstances. So I'll give you one example, and this is something that, you know, I've been really interested in and I'm writing about a little bit. There's a whole bunch of Jewish thinkers in the medieval periods, like in the European Middle Ages. This is the time that I spend a lot of, you know, of time studying, who pose questions like the following. They'll say, let's say after people die and God eventually redeems. So one of the component parts of of some Jewish ideas about the end of time, the apocalypse, the afterlife, is the notion of triatametim, the resurrection of the dead. You know, when some people take this literally, some people give this all kinds of interpretations. Certainly in the Middle Ages, they took it pretty literally. And the question that they ask is, so at the end of time, when everybody's resurrected from the dead, will people who were married on earth remarry or remain married in the afterlife? basically. And again, whether that's in heaven or whether that's, you know, Abba, the world to come or, or the resurrection of the dead. Basically, the, the question I think that they're driving at is, do these familial relationships and, and maybe romantic relationships or, you know, intimate relationships, do they exist only for social reasons in this world that we inhabit? Or do they fundamentally alter you on like a theological level, maybe on the level of your soul, we would say. And what's so interesting, I think, is that there are many Jewish thinkers in the Middle Ages who do not take it for granted that you'll stay married even to a you know wonderful spouse that you had in this world after the resurrection of the dead. It might, you know, the heaven or the afterlife might be a kind of a reset where all of your connections or encumbrances or relationships that you had, you know, when you were alive are now sort of gone. The, the line that, that's used in some of these sources is, it's in, in Hebrew, it's kishimetu, 
uh, your bonds are loosened or your ties are broken, which also I always thought has this fascinating implications for like how we think about the self and how we think about what a Jewish person is, right? Like, are you at the end of the day, fundamentally an individual who in the next world is going to be just sort of, you know, yourself without anything that you were tied to any of the relationships that made you who you were in this world? Or do we think in a more collective way about like a person as being fundamentally linked to the person they choose to make their life with, their family members, people they're in relationships with, to the extent that you can't imagine that person in the afterlife without all of those kinds of... So there too, I think there's a really interesting tension. And I think you can maybe track the way that different Jewish thinkers answer those questions, sometimes based on the historical surroundings they find themselves in. What was the idea about the family in Roman times, in medieval times, in modern America? And sometimes I think the way that Jewish thinkers grapple with these issues shows that they're also in relationship with like the ideas about family, about relationships that govern their thought in the time period in which they're writing. Hmm. One of the things that's interesting, what you're saying is the question of whether soulmates are for the purpose of perfecting your soul, like does your soul have one other soul that's supposed to be connected or could are there the possibilities of other people? Maybe this links a bunch of the sources that you're quoting. Yeah. So I think I think the conceit the original conceit in the good place, what I know what really charmed Chidi at the beginning was the thought that like I never succeeded on earth in having a soulmate. And really none of them did. Yeah. And that they that, that a soulmate isn't possible on earth. And this is the kind of stuff that blows my mind and gives me my cheaty stomach aches because I, I so much <laughs> see the uh, the heaven part of the good place as as really metaphors for earth. But but here are these souls who are in this afterlife. And it's interesting that these pairings off seem to matter to them. I guess even after the reboot, after they're clear about they're in this sort of reboot situation, that that was fiction, mm-hmm. that they still seem drawn toward like they want to be, they seem to want to be married or they wonder if they, they should and who's good for me. So yeah. I like sort of the, I like kind of the corollary of the soulmate idea that I'd like to have someone who's good for me, but I wonder if the converse is true. The person who's good for me is by definition, my, my soulmate. It seems like Eleanor is stuck in this place where she's like, you know, like clearly Chidi is good for her. And she recognizes that there was a version of her who thought that that was her, but shared. And now right. she just sees him as a great teacher who's really important to her. And, but, but at the moment, at least not her soulmate or she doesn't want to talk about it. Yeah. So, so right. So I, my my reading of that, or you know, what I thought when I watched that that scene where she's sort of hiding the video, but it's also watching it obsessively. It, it seemed to me like she's ahead of him. He says, "I don't have any feelings for you," um, and she seems, you know, let down by that or disappointed by that, even though she tries to make a good show of sort of, oh yeah, well me neither. So, but you know, not to give any spoilers away for future. No, we can do it. But, we were a okay. spoiler. Yeah, but, spoilers. You know, they do end up together, right? And they do seem to have a, you know, a sort of, you know, amazing relationship long term. So, so again, you know, she's she's been told that he's her soulmate because in a previous reboot they were together. So obviously this has been decreed. He's not there yet. When they eventually end up together, is that because they were soulmates all along? Or is it because they grew into each other, but could have, you know, theoretically ended up with others? You know, so to, again, I was being a little bit facetious before that, like, Derek and Janet are the real soulmates in this episode. But in a way, I wonder if their relationship is kind of like the proof in the pudding that if somebody's soul is too fused with your own, then the relationship becomes ultimately just like narcissistic, right? You're in a relationship with yourself rather Mm -hmm. than with another person. Like maybe to have a healthy relationship, you can't have 
two people sharing the same soul. Like the essence of a relationship is two different people with two distinct identities who are nonetheless able to complement each other. I don't know if this is getting too deep. Or too no, deep. I think that's great. And, and really Adam and Eve, who are described as, Eve is, is in some sense Adam's Derek, although <laughs> right. flipped, although it wasn't, uh, Adam didn't create Eve, but Eve. And then they are, and then some of these ideas where they were really two, two bodies fused together who were pulled apart, but they, it right. didn't. They, they don't seem like the, at least the Torah doesn't make them look like soulmates and they don't end their story. They end, they end their story bickering. Uh, it would be funny to do a, a, a Janet, Derek, bicker version of Adam and Eve after. But she gave me the, you know, and why did you put a snake in my void? You know? Right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then this, this, this great reabsorption at the end, the kiss, which just makes you think of like the reversal of this idea of the two back-to-back bodies in that image. And I know it's in Greek philosophy and in, and in this Jewish idea too of becoming one flesh or something. Something. Or um, God breathing, you know, God breathes the spirit into man, and here Janet sucks the spirit out <laughs> of, you know. There is this idea, actually, right, in, in some Jewish mystical texts about certain particularly righteous people dying when God kisses them, then Moses dies, you know, with a kiss, with a divine kiss. So maybe, I don't know, maybe a, a, a Jewish mystical corollary to Janet, you know, absorbing Derek in that uh, in that particularly graphic way. <laughs> it's, you know, it is interesting, because I feel like you're, you're, you, you asked this question of whether Jewish thought thinks of our pairings on earth, even when they're profound, as really limited to the earth and defined really by the social and biological needs of our of our bodies on earth yeah. and i think that's that's interesting because i think the things that you've been quoting suggest that there's maybe a subset of relationships even of paired relationships that have soulmate qualities but it but it's not a one-to-one thing do you have a sense that in some of these medieval teachings it would be nice to have a soulmate in in the beyond or is it necessary for some people yeah i think that it's such a good question. I think that some of these sources seem to be thinking about, you know, not, again, not to psychoanalyze their authors, but so, sometimes it seems like there's like a wish fulfillment going on. In general, we, I think people in, in, in different religious traditions have looked to the afterlife as a place where everything that was difficult on earth is going to be gone. Anything you wish for on earth and didn't get, you know, it's okay because you're going to get it in the afterlife. Is maybe kind of like a, again, psychological wish fulfillment kind of explanation that can be given for some ideas about what's waiting after death. And so in some cases, I wonder if, you know, the appeal of having a perfect idealized relationship, romantic relationship in the afterlife is just something that can compensate for the fact that probably many people, certainly in the pre-modern times, were paired off in marriages, not because they were romantic soulmates, but because marriage was also an economic arrangement. People got married for, you know, to strengthen their kin network. There were all kinds of explanations for why people got married, you know, prior to, say, recent centuries that had nothing to do with romance. And so thinking about your true soulmate in the afterlife as being actually the person who's really best suited to you on every level. So maybe that's, you know, sort of a deferred gratification in a way. But but yeah, I mean, some of these sources also are asking these questions not only about marriage, which is what we tend to associate with this idea of soulmate, but also parents, also mm. children. And again, I think it's so striking in The Good Place that almost every character's parents are still alive while they're in the afterlife. Mm. Tahani's parents we know are alive. Her sister is alive. Yeah, Eleanor's mother, right? Yeah. Jason's father we meet eventually, right? That, that's Donkey Doug, I think. Another amazing <laughs> character. And also none of the 
four main characters have children before they die. So like, whereas again, some of these Jewish sources are asking the same kinds of questions about, are you fundamentally connected to your parents or to your children on a theological level? Are you going to see them again in the afterlife? Or are, are all family relationships potentially something this worldly that are disconnected or, or, you know, independent of your true soul's essence, you know, sort of on its own terms? It's like a very weighty question, I think. But uh, but it's something that these thinkers were really, you know, were really interested in. If I were guessing, I would think, and now I'm just kind of firing stuff at you, that I would guess a couple things that might or might not be there. One is this idea of Gilgul and the showed of kind of recycling a reincarnation of souls and whether yeah. whether one of the things your soul needs to do in its intermediate phase out of earthly life is to do some chuva, to do some repair, and it needs a, another soul Maybe that's part of the process for some people before you you then come back. Another thing I might wonder about that you just have this intermediate period between your death and your final judgment, so to speak. And again, I don't believe any of these things literally, but that part of what you do, and I think what happens in the good place is you reflect on your life. That turns out to be sort of part of the process of your final score, right? And you sort of perfect yourself a little a little further. And that maybe there's, if I, again, I were predicting that there might be someone who's there in that intermediate phase who helps you do that. I feel like Tahani in this middle to later part of season two is really becoming a more interesting character. And and part of it is that she really, I think, uses Jason very much to, uses his simplicity to to question, you know, she goes at, am I really that self-centered? Am I really that materialistic? Am I really that, you know name-dropping, prize-seeking person. Right. And and she, you know, here in this part of the episode, she's like, well, I'm not, I'm not yet the person who could really see Jason as my soulmate. I'm not really at the place where I could see Jason as my soulmate, but I I recognize that we should, you know, have pillow talk together and it's it's good for my soul to yeah. to hang out in that way with him, which I think is is sweet as sweet and they pull it off in such a funny way but i'm wondering yeah. if, if that's in the picture at all especially because it's also how powerful in uh you know the previous episode just structured this in terms of friendship there was you know because friends and even here where where eleanor says to janet like you don't you don't need a rebound guy you might just need a friend for now right Right, Sorry, I looped right. around a bunch of things, but I mean, is no. there is there a sense I, that that the that that you're in the afterlife, your soul needs some kind of partner to help you clarify yourself? Right. So I so I have an, an anecdote that I'll share, which is that so you know, like you, I think I think whether anybody takes any of these materials, you know, literally or not, it seems undeniable that the way these questions in the Jewish sources about the afterlife, about resurrection, etc., the way that they're phrased, are driving at these for almost philosophical questions. What is a person? What is good? You know, what is there to look forward to? You know, what is morality? So all, I feel like all these questions are dealt with really thoughtfully in these sources, even if you, you know, put aside the question of, do they literally believe that this is going to happen in any kind of a tangible way? In the course that I mentioned at the beginning of our, of our conversation that I teach at Northwestern on the history of heaven, so I actually, I flagrantly stole this from The Good Place. Uh, the <laughs> final assignment that I gave the class, I broke them up into groups, um, and I basically said to them, I want you to come up with your own afterlife. The same way that towards the end, the characters in The Good Place have to sort of 
rejigger the whole scoring system. So I, I said to each group, come up with your own version of the afterlife. I called it disrupting the afterlife and basically had them almost in an entrepreneurial way, come up with a new system that you can sell investors. On. And we brought in actually- That's like totally how it happens later on with, with it, Pritchett to Sean and yeah. It, so right, like I said, I don't take any credit <laughs> for this, blatantly uh, plagiarized from the good place, but I brought in like a panel, somebody from our business school, somebody from the, from the religious life office. And anyway, had them judge the different presentations. And something that was so striking was that every group, when they came up with their version of the afterlife, came up with this highly individualistic system for judging you as an individual and what are you going to get at the end of days and how are we going to determine based on your actions, your fate. And something that we discussed when we like debriefed afterwards was, isn't it interesting that nobody thought about the you that is subject to judgment or to an afterlife or the core of your identity. Nobody thought of it in these kinds of collective terms that actually the good place itself does. I think that it's impossible to imagine any of these people without either the soulmate that's assigned to them or the group of friends that they make or, you know, the relationships that really make up the show. And again, like for plot reasons, they ha there has to be an ensemble cast. But maybe on a deeper level, I think it's saying something actually really profound about like what a person is, that a person is enmeshed, whether it's with their family or their partner or just their friends or their relationships, like that affects who you are on a fundamental level. And maybe within 21st century, you know, highly individualistic society, a lot of my students just did not think that at all. You know, they really defaulted to thinking about what a person is in this very atomized kind of way. So and that was kind of rambling. But, but, you know, anyway, I think that shows that we're still grappling with, you know, between the show and the Jewish sources and actually people's assumptions about who they are. We're still very much grappling with this question of what makes me, me, and, and how am I affected or shaped or almost like a compound entity on a certain level with the other people who are my soulmates or who, who make me who I am. Interesting. Yeah. And, and who help me with my tshuva or we do that together, our soul improvement mates, I guess. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there any other place you want to go? I've got so much other funny lines that I jotted down for the episode. But yeah, that's you... uh, taking us backwards. Um, no, do that. What else? What did you? So I, I, I love the discussion early on when he said, when, um, when Michael says, how do ethical philosophers feel about murder? <laughs> no, it's, it's frowned upon. <laughs> what if the reason you want to murder someone is to make your life easier? That's okay, right? And the whole stuff with the winking. I thought that was, I, I, whatever. Again, another part that I just found, found really funny, but also a great example of how they're able to bring in, I forget what it is, the doctrine of double effect or you know all, all this sort of philosophical terminology in this really smart way and then and then the last thing that i learned from watching the the or listening to the official podcast was that the way that they got a lot of dialogue for derek was by writing out his lines running it through google translate two or three times into different languages and then translating it back into english um <laughs> that's how they got some of the like garbled syntax and like the weird phrasing which I thought was so brilliant also. And, uh, and so one of his lines, you know, is Janet says to him, say goodbye. And he says, good, Bob. I hope we same place again very now. Uh, so I don't know if that's a good ending place that, that John, I, I hope we same place again very now. I hope we do. I think that the soulmate issue, it's always there, but it, it becomes more prominent in certain 
episodes. And and as we do, I, I think you and I will check in on that. And even if we kind of review some of the same sources that you brought and, and some of the more that I know you have in your hip pocket, our understanding of them will grow as we see how it develops in the show. It is great, David Chivitz, to meet you and to, to co-host with you today. It was uh, it was such a pleasure. This is, you know, my, some of my favorite topics to talk about. And so it's great to have a kindred spirit to just, you know, work through all this stuff with. Oh, I did want to ask you if you have anybody who you want to call out who is an early person who got you thinking about ethical philosophy or ethics. That's a great question. I I was a I was a philosophy minor in college and went to rabbinical seminary for a little while and you know yeshiva. So I've spent a lot of time thinking about the interplay between some of these Jewish sources and some of these big picture philosophical ideas. But somebody who I had just been reading recently, who I don't know if, if she's been mentioned on the podcast before, but Dr. Mara Benjamin, who's a professor who wrote this amazing book, The Obligated Self, has informed the way that I've thought about some of these questions about identity and identity with family and what makes you you as opposed to another person and just the way that individuals are shaped and constituted by the people that they are in relationships with. So anybody who's listening, who's looking for a really great read on some deeper thoughts on some of these kinds of issues, I I would really recommend that book. Great. And we'll link to that. So thank you, David Scheivitz. And thank you out there for listening to another episode of Tove. We hope you've enjoyed yourself. And we do hope we've added something by talking about the show we all love. You can find links related to our conversation in the show notes for the episode at tovegoodplace.com. If you're not already subscribed, do that so you can get each episode as soon as it drops. And so we can edge up the recommendations that other people see on their apps. The best recommendation, of course, is you, so share Tove on your own social media, or just tell someone about it. Connect with us at Tove Good Place. And if you've got any ideas or questions, or want to have any back and forth on something we've talked about, post it there, or drop a note to tove at tovegoodplace.com. I'm John Spira Savet, at RabbiJS3 and RabbiJohn.net. Thanks again for making time for Tove, and go learn more about something good. Bum 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 bum